Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 1, The Island Boy. How do you define destiny? Is it a predetermined course of life? Is it a path that we forge through pure will and determination? Is it the existence of our everyday with variable events that ultimately persuade us to choose what we do next? Is it something else, or is it a combination of all the above? You see, humans have been trying to grapple with what quote-unquote destiny is since, well, the dawn of time. We're here, we must have some reason for our existence, right? Some people have gone mad attempting to find that answer, while others use the very thought of destiny to define what legacy they leave behind. These are the men and women who have forged history, changed the world we live in, and have defined the ages. We recount their stories because they remind us of the power a single person can have on the never-ending story of us. Humane and inhumane, moral and immoral, good and evil. We can probably all think of at least a few people from history class who hit one or two of these descriptions, or perhaps more. But oftentimes, history graces us with someone who is all and in between, a person both malevolent and benevolent, omnipotent, and yet mortal. These people are what I like to describe as the titans of history, those whose impact and legacy is so great to our story, they transcend the recounted narrative and enter a nearly mythical status. And this series is dedicated to these men and women whose lives have given us the world that we live in today. Now, depending on who writes these history books, of course, these titans can either be strongmen who ravage cities or saviors who galvanize their societies into a new age. But we know that history is far more muddled than the here or there, the right or left, the black or white. History is always gray. People, titans are not our people, and they have flaws, feelings, emotions, and perhaps above all, ambitions. Some take these ambitions to unrivaled heights, they take them to a place that gives them the belief that they were sent by providence to change the world. Their ambition becomes their destiny. And sometimes, their destiny is the destiny of the rest of the world. And so, as we embark on the Titans of history, we begin with a man whose legacy endures over two centuries after his death. A man whose name is so famous, so well-known, that just hearing it conjures up thoughts of a meticulous strategist, an insatiable thirst for conquest, an enlightened reformer, and to some, a ruthless tyrant. A man who rose from humble beginnings to become an emperor that made Europe tremble. We begin this series, of course, with the life of Napoleon. But before we begin, I guess I should 
probably explain why I chose Napoleon of all the Titans to begin our series. There are literally countless of other greats who lived well before his time who could have filled this first spot. Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Augustus, Genghis Khan. Why Napoleon? Well, for me, there are two main reasons. The first is, I didn't want to have any particular order for this series. All of these men and women are, are great. And they've impacted history in such a way that to have them in some sort of thematic canon would seem almost insulting in a way. Their individual stories need to be told as they are, none necessarily more important than the other. So, as you might be guessing, no, there will not be any historical order for our Titans. Each will stand alone, their story told through the lens of the world that they were etched in and the history that they helped to define. But the second reason, and this one's certainly a little bit more personal, and as lame as it may sound, is that with Napoleon, it is very personal to me, actually. Napoleon was the first person I ever wrote a biographical report on back in the fourth grade. I remember combing through, you know, actual physical encyclopedias in an actual library while writing down actual note cards on, and check this out, note cards to form my thoughts. So, in a way, going back to Napoleon is a way for me to go back to when I first discovered my love of history. And starting with him seems logical to take this next journey on my passion for history. And hopefully this time around, I do a little better than a B-plus in telling a story. So, with that preamble done, let's get into the life of Napoleon Bonaparte. It can be hard to fully grasp just how incredible a rise Napoleon had during his five and a half decades on this earth. It's perhaps even more miraculous when you think about the world in which he was born into. Such a stark contrast was France when he was born in 1769 to when he died in 1821 that it would be like comparing a blistering July summer day to a bone-chilling January winter morning. And much of that difference was in no large part to his influence on it. Yet perhaps even more incredible is the legacy that Napoleon left behind, much of which is still felt to this day. His military strategies and battle plans are studied in military academies all over the world. The Bank of France, which he founded in 1800 during the early years of the French consulate, is still the central financial institution of the country over 120 years later. His codification of the legal system, known today as the Napoleonic Code, is the basis for legal systems on every continent on earth. His impact on the educational system, infrastructure, and citizenry helped to shape French identity long after his defeat at Waterloo. People now saw themselves as citizens of a country rather than subjects of a king. Train stations are named after his victorious battles. Roads are named after his campaigns. Arches are named after his mythical triumphs. Even in defeat, as Napoleon languished away in total isolation on the island of St. Helena, it's tough to say that he really lost. He was conquered and his empire disintegrated, yes, but over 200 years later, it is Napoleon who the world remembers. Not even his famous victorious counterparts of Wellington and Blücher. Napoleon. I've got the emperor in my guts, said a worker as Napoleon was re-entombed in Paris. And over two centuries later, the world still has the little corporal deep inside its guts. Napoleon was born Napoleone Bonaparte 
on the island of Corsica in the capital of Ajaccio to a family of minor Italian nobility on the 15th of August, 1769. Formerly an Italian possession held by the Republic of Genoa, the Genoese ceded Corsica to France in 1768, and France promptly conquered it the year Napoleon was born. Napoleon's father, Carlo, was described as a loving but often weak father. While initially a Corsican freedom fighter against the French invasion following the island's capitulation, Carlo began to accept the takeover and harbor French sympathies, something which would anger many of his countrymen, including leading patriot of the day Pasquale Paoli, who labeled him as a traitor to the island nation. But due to his newfound Francophile tendencies, Carlo became a savvy nobleman in French circles. He spoke French relatively well, was well-versed with the French philosophers of his day, such as Voltaire and Rousseau, and would eventually become Corsica's representative to the court of King Louis XVI in 1778. But Carlo was also pernicious in his financial spending, greatly indebting his family by the time he passed away in 1785, age 38, after a battle with stomach cancer. Later writing to his older brother Joseph after learning of their father's death, Napoleon lamented, quote, We have lost our father the sole support of our youth, and our country has lost a keen, enlightened, and honest citizen. It was so decreed by the supreme being. Napoleon would often assume, and correctly as it would turn out, that he too would die young on account of his father, and it would become a motivating factor for his ambitions later in life. Napoleon's mother, Maria Leticia, on the other hand, was uneducated but devoutly Catholic, something she would try to pass on to all of her children. Her father had once been the governor of Ajaccio, and her family helped arrange the marriage with Carlo. A strict but loving mother, it was her that Napoleon would often identify with most in his adult years. Speaking of her in his later writings, she was described by him as a, quote, superb woman, a woman of ability and courage. Her tenderness was severe. Here was the head of a man on the body of a woman. Given what we know now of Napoleon's view on gender roles in society later in life, this Commentary is considerably high praise, and it shows just how much of an impact she would have on his life. The Bonapartes would go on to have 13 children between 1765 and 1786, eight of them surviving past infancy, a not uncommon ratio for the day. Of those eight, there would be one emperor, one queen, two princesses, and three kings. Now, try to find a higher degree of nepotism, I dare you. All jokes aside, Napoleon was born into a world in which his countrymen were utterly embarrassed at the fact that they were now French subjects. Budding Corsican nationalism ran high throughout the island society, and it was Napoleon's Corsican identity and, self-admittedly, patriotism that would define his school years in Paris, his early military training, and his larger worldview. And Napoleon the Child was about as bright a kid as there could be for an 18th century Corsican Italian living now under French hegemony. He was well-read, versed in all the enlightened writers of his day, and was a quick learner. Napoleon himself claimed that he read Jean-Jacques Rousseau's 800-page La Nouvelle Héloïse at the age of nine. Now, on the other side, my mother had a difficult time getting me to read the 107-page of Mice and Men when I was nearing 12. So, you know, Napoleon is just already beginning to do that thing where he one-ups everyone alive today at any one of his respective ages. And we haven't even gotten to the Italian or Egyptian campaigns yet. It was also at the age of nine that his parents arranged for the young Bonaparte to be sent off to mainland France, known locally as the continent, to attend school and receive a secondary military education. 
initially enrolling at a religious school in Autun, he would receive the majority of his education at the military academy at Brienne-le-Château, Brienne for short. It was here at Brienne that Bonaparte was educated in the fields of mathematics, history, language, physics, and surprisingly dance, a passion for which he would develop later in life and use to his great advantage for social mobility. Yet perhaps where the young Bonaparte subscribed to most, though, were the military writings of the ancient generals he would go on to admire, emulate, and cite, both in the classroom and on the battlefield. A story recounted by his older brother Joseph stated that when they were in primary school together, there were two flags, one Roman and one Carthaginian, and that Napoleon would refuse to sit under the Carthaginian flag because they had lost the Punic Wars. It would be this comical and trivial, but yet meticulous attention to detail that would make the young Bonaparte into one of the greatest military commanders in human history. Indeed, Napoleon would often tell his junior officers to read and reread the campaigns of Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, King Adolphus of Sweden, and Frederick the Great of Prussia. Doing so, he would say, would be the only way in which these men could become great military leaders. But despite Napoleon's obvious academic aptitude, he would face challenges when he was sent away to France. First off, Napoleon's native language was Corsican, a language similar to Genoese. He also spoke Italian, but he would not learn French until the age of 10, and for the rest of his life he would speak French with a heavy Corsican accent, showing relative inability to use proper grammar in both speech and writing, though that was not uncommon for the day as the education rates were much lower than what they would be after his reign. That we now know of how far he would rise in power and status, despite this obvious crutch in a society in which upward mobility was nearly impossible, even difficult in post-revolutionary France, just further exemplifies how gifted Napoleon really was. But apart from Napoleon's basic French, he also stood out in other ways. He was short, he was a foreigner, and his mannerisms were completely different from that of French high society, even for children. He was often bullied for all of these differences, and he would take to long periods of isolation as a child, oftentimes spending hours locked away in his room reading. And read he would, voraciously. Napoleon also excelled at mathematics, a skill he believed was indispensable towards military success. He would later say, quote, To be a good general, you must know mathematics. It serves to direct your thinking in a thousand circumstances. But perhaps unsurprisingly, his mind was consumed with history. Aside from the enlightened French writers of his time, Napoleon read Caesar, his personal hero, Cicero, Voltaire, Diderot, the Abbé Reynal, Erasmus, Livy, Virgil, among others. It is unsurprising, then, that we begin to see here how this young child turned into an unparalleled leader. He learned and absorbed from some of the greatest of such men of their times. And because of his insatiable appetite for reading and prose, Napoleon had early yearnings to become a writer, even writing a short romantic novella about his native Corsica. Throughout his life, over 30,000 of personal documents ascribed to Napoleon have survived to the modern day, many of which are source material for this podcast, allowing us to see into the great general's mind. But despite these passions, Napoleon knew his destiny, there's that word again, would be in the military. Initially thinking of joining the French Navy, he ultimately decided against it when he learned his mother would fear he would die of drowning. I suppose death by artillery fire on an open field near Austria would be a far more preferable way to die to his dearest mother, or killing Austrians with that artillery. And that's exactly what Napoleon would soon be trained to do. 
1784, Napoleon would become the first Corsican to attend the prestigious École Royale Militaire, France's top military academy. He was also just one of 14 out of a possible 202 applicants to be accepted into artillery training, thanks in no large part to his proficient mathematics knowledge. It would be here at Ecoli that Napoleon would meet and learn from some of the France's newest military reformers, including his future interior minister, the Marquis de Laplace. Napoleon also benefited from the timing in which he entered Ecoli. France had been on the losing end of the Seven Years' War, which concluded just six years before Napoleon was born. A war that could consume an entire podcast all on its own. That's called foreshadowing, by the way. The long and short of it, as it pertains to us, is that in the Treaty of Paris of 1763, France essentially ceded most of her North American colonies over to Britain and Spain, while receiving some fishing rights and keeping some of her Louisiana territory west of the Mississippi River. Now, remember that little bit at the end there, because that'll be important during Napoleon's early years as a cash-strapped emperor. Anyway, France had long held this lost territory as a major impetus for military reform and to exact revenge on Great Britain. Indeed, their assistance of the American colonies during the American Revolution was, in France's eyes, their first step in revenge for the Seven Years' War and a further validation of the reform that had been made. One of these new reforms was the greater emphasis on artillery as a more integral tactic on the battlefield. You see, in the preceding wars, cannons and heavy artillery were often used from a distance as most of the pieces were heavy, required many men and or animals to move, and served their purpose in stationary positions. But now, with improvements in metallurgy and technology overall, artillery was able to be constructed into lighter, more mobile units. As a result, Napoleon entered artillery training at a time when these reforms were being adopted, and his education on artillery speed in battle would be a crucial component to his future campaigns down the road. France, on the whole, though, thought that these reforms coupled with Britain's quote-unquote crippling defeat in the American War of Independence would be enough to tip the balance of power in her favor in future conflicts. But, unfortunately for France, as we now know, Britain losing her American colonies did not tip the balance of power in favor of France. In fact, to the contrary, all it did end up doing was leave France further in debt than she already was, teetering her closer and closer to the edge of complete financial and societal collapse. But that's a story for next week. Because in the meantime, Napoleon was a wide-eyed, ambitious, young student soldier whose very ethos would come to be developed during his time at Ecoli. And what would be a defining characteristic of Napoleon, he would often subscribe to theories or principles that he generally did not believe in. For example, as the French Revolution began to take on its early legs, Napoleon espoused the ideals of equality before the law, rational government, meritocracy, and aggressive nationalism. But they did not exactly fit in with his deeply held beliefs of social hierarchy, law and order, and entrenched institutionalism. He hated the thought of mob rule, and as we'll come to see, he would do all he could in his power to put down such forms of mutinous rabble-rousing. But something else that would come into focus during his early military training was a developing hatred of Great Britain. And to be able to act out on that hatred as a Frenchman, well, one had to be a soldier. And so it was that on the 1st of September, 1785, Napoleon received his commission into the Compagnie d'Automne of Bombardiers of the 5th Brigade of the 1st Battalion of the Regiment de la Ferie in Valence. A prestigious assignment, the 1st Battalion was one of the five oldest artillery regiments in the French military, and Napoleon would be the first Corsican to have joined their ranks. 
He was also one of the youngest officers ever commissioned at just 16 years old. But much like any lower-ranking military officer at the time, Napoleon's early stay in the military was, mm, let's say, modest. But despite these poor conditions, he would use his free time to, really, to no one's surprise, read and read and read. He would often skip meals to be able to afford new books, including those on the histories of the Arabs, ancient Venice, Switzerland, England, and more. A habit he could never really shed, Napoleon just could not stop learning. He was an absolute sponge for information, and if that information had anything to do pertaining to military strategy or history, you could be sure Napoleon read it at least once and probably twice. He left no stone unturned, and it showed. With all of that said, Napoleon the soldier still never really saw himself as French. He hardly even considered himself a soldier of France. You see, the most curious part of Napoleon's early military career was that he was still a fervent Corsican nationalist. Deep down, he despised France and what France stood for. He languished at the fact that they oppressed his Corsican countrymen, treating them as second-class citizens in a society in which being anything other than nobility meant you were nothing more than horse feed. Now, on the surface, it doesn't seem that strange. The military was likely the best path for someone of Napoleon's law in society to advance, and France's military was one of the finest in the world. But it does beg the question as to what was going on deep in his mind as he was absorbing some of the finest military training in the world. Did he plan to take it back to Corsica and use it to build an army and rebel against the French rule? Would he commit treason and mutiny against an army which he swore fidelity to? You see, the answer to these questions is, like much of Napoleon's life, nuanced. Keep in mind, Napoleon, as he espouses these ideas, is, you know, 16 years old, and in some instances, even younger. Now, look, 16 in 1786 France might not be 16 in 2022, but 16 is still a teenager, and I don't know about you, but I'm not one to be reading many theses from local high schoolers on rising up against a colonial ruler. But Napoleon found his Corsican identity, especially in primary school, to be something of a comfort during his times of isolation. Indeed, being bullied so often by young French noble kids would drive anyone to miss their homeland, and so was with Napoleon. And even though he was just a child, Napoleon became enamored with the idea of a free Corsica, ideas espoused by the Corsican nationalist he admired most, Pasquale Paoli. Would it not have been for Napoleon Bonaparte turning into, well, Napoleon, Pasquale Paoli likely would have ended his life as the most famous Corsican in history. Instead, he ended his life in exile, in England, bitter to the end about what he felt were betrayals by French sympathizers on his home island, none more so than Napoleon's father, Carlo. Pasquale Paoli was born in 1725 to a family of noted resistance fighters. Corsica, at the time, was not under France's royal yoke, but under Genoa's oligarchic merchant republic's royal yoke. His father, Giacinto, was regarded as one of the three generals of the people in their fight against the Genoese rule, which, by this point, they had viewed as tyrannical and ignored much of the administration on the island. Pasquale would soon grow to become the lead resistance fighter on Corsica against Genoese rule, and in 1755, Corsica became the first country to ratify a constitution under the Enlightened Principles. Not the United States, not France, Corsica. In doing so, they declared themselves independent as the Republic of Corsica. 
Now, during this time, France saw an opportunity. Genoa didn't exactly see Corsica as independent, more so autonomous, and quite frankly, more trouble than what it was worth. So, as we mentioned at the start of the episode, Genoa ceded Corsica to France in 1768 as a way to offset some of the debts they had incurred from France in the defense of the island against Paoli's resistance. Not exactly one to give in to foreign hegemonic rule, Paoli organized and led the subsequent resistance against the French invasion, but they were unable to defeat the numerically superior army and ultimately lost in 1769. Paoli would take his first exile to London, embittered at the fact that he felt like there were likely French sympathizers and collaborators in his midst. Not exactly incorrect. (laughs) But an adolescent Napoleon always felt like this was just a temporary situation. Even in his early military career, he wrote treasonously, Quote, the Corsicans, following all the laws of justice, have been able to shake off the yoke of the Genoese and may do the same with that of the French. Amen. Indeed, Napoleon yearned for the opportunity to go back and fight to retake his home country, at times even writing near suicidal notes at the thought of the oppression his countrymen faced at the hands of the French. But these letters, while certainly showing signs of angst, also display something a little bit more relatable, homesickness. Napoleon had not been back to Corsica in over eight years. He had three siblings that he had never even met. He had never had the opportunity to go back home, a burden which certainly weighed on him as he was a family man. He was extremely close to his siblings, so much so he would make them kings and queens of all of Europe. But in September of 1786, age 17, he finally got his opportunity to go back home. He requested a leave of five months, a not uncommon request at the time during times of peace, but would end up staying there on the island for over a year. Napoleon would go back to Corsica a total of five times between 1786 and 1793, many of those years in the thick of the French Revolution. Indeed, during some of the most famous events of the early revolution, Napoleon was not even in France, but back home mostly dealing with family health issues and the remaining financial issues with his father's estate, or rather, lack thereof. When he returned to France, Napoleon was stationed at his first military posts, at Auxon and Valence, respectively. At both posts, he kept his austere lifestyle going, often only eating once a day to save money to send back to his family and to, of course, buy more books. Throughout his time, Napoleon had always wanted to join Paoli's cause to retake Corsica, and he fervently believed that the military training he received in France would be invaluable to the cause of resistance back home. But in an ironic twist, and one that, in my personal opinion, might have changed the course of world history, Paoli never really thought much to consider Napoleon, and indeed had little sympathy for the boy. Paoli still harbored immense feelings of betrayal towards his father, Carlo, and believed that his lack of support for their resistance against the French invasion was a key reason in their defeat. It was over the course of these fracturing relationships between the two men that helped lead Napoleon down the course from being an ardent Corsican nationalist into a budding French nationalist. And while we'll get into Napoleon's disagreements with Paoli and indeed much of Corsica as we begin his early military career in the following episodes, we need to first get to what caused a young Napoleon to have such a massive shift in his national and, frankly, personal philosophy. Because... To spark such a big shift, one needed a big event. Well, folks, enter stage right. The biggest event you can possibly bring to bear, the French Revolution. An event so big, no one in Europe could escape it. 
and Napoleon would slowly, but surely, enter on to the revolutionary stage as its main actor. I'll leave you all with this. It's a little off topic, but I think it's a great comparison on how just the presence of an individual can convey their magnanimity. There's a quote by television director Steve Bender describing the greatness and sex appeal of Elvis Presley, which goes, quote, I'm straight as an arrow, and I've got to tell you, you stop, whether you're male or female, to look at him. And if you didn't know he was a superstar, it wouldn't make any difference. If he'd walked into the room, you'd know somebody special was in your presence. Even as a young student soldier, I feel that's how many of Napoleon's contemporaries must have felt towards him. They certainly didn't know just how yet, but I think deep down, they understood that they were in the presence of someone special, someone who was on his way to being a man of, well, destiny. But this little Elvis would grow on to become more than the king. He would grow to become the emperor. Thank you.